0: welcome to the sanctuary a safe space to speak from the heart i'm your host israel and my guest today is eleanor crosby and i'm gonna read this (laughs) because i love it punk has book jockey belly dancer fiverr artist fat activist queer bisexual gender fluid bookworm sex positive and a social media junkie thanks for coming to the sanctuary today
1: well thank you for having me this is exciting (laughs)
0: <laughs> um yeah how are you doing today
1: i'm doing okay i'm uh what? having a nice slow saturday morning drinking tea having a uh, and having a chat
0: <laughs> what, what's all of tea
1: tea um today i'm bling, uh, drinking a black tea from world tea house that i like so
0: Oh okay, yeah. Yeah, You know, um, uh, there are people that are like really particular about their teas. I'm like, okay, it's just tea. But then I found out there's so many types of tea. I'm like, okay.
1: (laughs) There are. I'm only a little particular about my tea. Just a
0: little. little. Just a little. Just a little particular. Do you have a like favorite type of tea?
1: Um. Well, I like most black teas. Uh, but I do um, now. I like. I prefer loose leaf, so that's why I tend to buy a lot from World Tea House. I don't buy a lot of uh, tea at the grocery store anymore. So,
0: oh, yeah. So is World tea? I was like, no, that tea. Dave, is it David's tea or Dave's tea?
1: No, no. It's actually a local independent um, company that a friend of mine started, and oh, nice. it's organic and uh, fair trade. And he and his partner often visit some of the the farms that the tea is created on. And he has a tea mentor over in India. And, uh, yeah, it's a great nice. little spot.
0: Right, 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 mm-hmm. right. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm going to just go through the list. And the sure. first one is... <laughs> podcast Book Jockey. Yeah, what, What's up there?
1: Sure. Uh, well, I'm a librarian and uh it's a career i came to later in my life and wait, wait
0: like in that library with the beautiful building that one is that the one you walk in?
1: no no i work out in uh what is our uh health House public Library's western district so i work out in spryfield clayton park uh tantallon and hubbards i have a i have a district that i
0: serve oh oh so like yeah. when like you don't just walk in one place you have to mm-hmm.
1: go oh mm-hmm. okay all right i'm a, I'm a traveling manager
0: <laughs> okay well yeah you yeah. know so the when you see claim park is that the kenshin goodman one is that yes
1: yeah okay yeah
0: right that's the one closest to me that's how yeah I mean it. <laughs>
1: yeah it's closest to me too so yeah we're probably neighbors and we don't know
0: it right 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 <laughs> um so you said you got into that later in life why yeah.
1: why well um I didn't figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up until I was about 35, I think.
0: How? uh, Like, you know, growing up, did, like, you know, most people want to be something, even though it's unreal, you know, unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Something, right? Mm. Did you want to be something growing up? Although I wanted
1: to be many things when I grew up. Right. I wanted to be many things. Uh, At various points, probably an astronaut, a veterinarian, an archaeologist. Most, the one that was excuse me the one that was most consistent however was artist um i ah. yeah so i've been drawing. what the artists
0: do oh drawing okay
1: yeah well a lot of different Well, artists do a lot of different things uh, they make a right. lot of different kinds of art right so uh you're an artist you create uh film and podcast and conversation and safe spaces so um, i guess yeah yeah, yeah i'll yeah. take
0: it <laughs> yeah
1: take it uh <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think most consistently the what I wanted to be was an artist and it was encouraged. So um, uh, that's kind of the the one thread that has been consistent throughout my life. But it's uh, it can be hard to make a life out of uh, and a career right. and survive off of art. Right. right. So I had to do a lot of different things. Uh, yeah.
0: So and then w- how did you now fall into the library thing? Mm. Like you become 35 and you're like, oh, wait, I want to be a librarian.
1: well i was 35 i was working in wholesale uh i was i i had manager in my title but that didn't stop me from having to carry 50 pound boxes of clothing from bali up three flights of stairs and oh yeah 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 so i was (laughs) yeah it's a small business in nova scotia like you might have the title manager but you're only getting paid like 14 bucks an hour and you're still hauling boxes and picking orders. So <laughs> Oh my
0: God. You were a manager I was still hauling stuff upstairs. Oh, yeah.
1: Well yeah, it's small business. So you have to do everything still. Um right. but I also because it was small business, I I didn't have uh paid vacation, I didn't have paid sick time, I had no benefits, I wasn't building up a pension. And in my mid thirties I kind of realized I should maybe st- I had a little space to start thinking about actually having a future and my future was looking bleak if that was kind of the industry that I stayed in. Right. Um, I've always been, a, I'm a huge reader. I'm a, 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 what we would call a library super user a lot of the time. And uh, yeah, and the libraries, libraries were vital to my existence in my twenties because I was on social assistance. Uh, I did all of, I, I built resume, My I built my resume on a library computer. I searched for jobs on library computers. I used the library to, um check out all the books I wanted to read and the music and the that I wanted to listen to the DVDs that I wanted to see so um yeah the library was a very important place to me when I was younger uh Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah when I was like thinking about what I wanted to do I knew some librarians and they were really cool people and Mm -hmm. uh I was like okay well I'll I'll talk I talked to one of my librarian friends and I was like so I think I might want to do this uh and uh uh, they persuaded me out of going to NSCC to do a library technician program because they were like, if you're going to do two years of school, you might as well do a master's because the technician, the technician pay kind of cap is where a librarian pay starts. And then, you know, and I was just like, well, okay, that seems like a better investment. But it still took me another couple of years to decide to incur uh, that much more student loan debt. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I became a librarian because I wanted to give to other people what the library had given to me in my 20s.
0: Right. So, yeah. Um. I think one of the coolest things is that is where, you know, you have the little number on your key tag thing and you can go online and, like, download books, you know, yeah. like, read. I, I think that's a, one of the coolest things. And old DVDs. Yeah. I like this, too. Um. So... How long have you been in the library now?
1: Uh, just a little over eight years.
0: Oh wow! And how's it yeah. been?
1: Uh, it's been excellent. It's um, uh, it's yeah. I don't know. It's I feel like uh, I feel like I have a job finally that I can do some good in my community, and also and also like live, like you know. So uh, it's fulfilling a couple of different needs there.
0: Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, and and the belly dancing.
1: Oh yeah, well that's something I started doing in my twenties. I took a, I took a like a, just an hour long introductory workshop at like a summer festival when I was maybe twenty two or twenty three, and I've always loved to dance. But as uh, growing up, uh, I was always like chubby, and I also lived in a very rural place, and I didn't have a lot of opportunities to take classes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I took belly dance, and that's something that was accessible to me through uh, Halifax Recreation. Um, so I took that workshop, and I was like, oh, my God, the music is amazing, and my body seems to be good at moving in these patterns, and it felt really fantastic. I felt It felt really good, so I started taking classes, um, and uh, I think within a year and a half, I was on stage. Just Oh, wow. Rest- yeah, yeah.
0: Cause was that like something when you started it with? Was that where you saw yourself going, like actually performing?
1: Um, I've, I've been perf- I've perform. I have been a performer most of my life. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's a bit a part of my artist artistic expression. I think uh, I come from a very musical family, so uh, I actually grew up I'm not realizing that I had a good singing voice because my, my Aunt June was the one who was the family singer. She had she was the voice, right? Mm-hmm. But most of our family parties would end up around a piano with all of us singing and making harmonies. And uh, my elementary school, my my Aunt June was our teacher and we would do musicals every year. And so oh. I participate in those and singing on stage. I took piano lessons for fourteen years. I performed at recitals. Um, yeah, so
0: so you can read those scribbles on the mm, thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, I actually consider. I, yeah, I started taking piano lessons when I was six. Uh, I rolled up into my uh, my neighbor's house. Uh, Mrs. Smith uh, was the farm like, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith had the farm around the corner. Mrs. Smith was a was the local piano teacher, uh, and we used to get our eggs from from them because they had a farm. Mm-hmm. So we were over there picking up eggs one day, and I saw the piano through the doorway, and I think I might have been. It was the spring, and I might have just turned six. And I'd been begging for piano lessons. I saw the piano, and I was like, oh, can I go play? Because my mom was chatting, and I was bored. Uh, (laughs) And Mrs. Smith was very indulgent. She's like, oh, yes, go play, dear. And then I I rolled up onto the piano and played the opening lines of The Entertainer. And Mm. Mrs. Smith apparently turned to my mother and said, I don't usually start kids until they're eight. She can start this fall. So yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So you still play?
1: I can. Um, I think because I started so early, I can still read music. Even though I haven't, I haven't owned a piano in years. Uh, I can sit down with a sheet of music, and it's not going to sound great at first. But uh, with a little bit of, just a little bit of practice, I can, I can, I can play the piano.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Um, uh huh. I guess when was the last time you played then?
1: Oh, it's probably the last time I visited my dad and stepmother down near Yarmouth um, uh, before they got rid of their piano. Um, oh, so it's okay. been a it's been a couple of years.
0: Right. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I uh, my only knowledge is like I had this music teacher and he was harsh because he was uh, and you had to learn those things and it just didn't make sense to me you Mm. know and apparently it's mathematical and i don't like maths right so Mm -hmm. just like what am i no and then you have to know what you want means and then if it's on a certain line you press a certain thing i'm like no but i'm really envious of people that can play musical instruments right so so that's cool okay so you already had the recital thing happening yeah uh, yeah. you, that just kind of transferred to the belly mm-hmm. dancing?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd taken one year of jazz ballet, I think, when I was 12 and performed in that recital. Um, so I guess it's always, uh, I'm used to demonstrating my skills, I guess. So uh, when there was an opportunity to, to perform, I wanted to do it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I know, and I know. Uh, I've taught belly dance. Uh, I taught belly dance for around 20 years as well. So I've had lots of students who were intimidated by the fact that I, you know, because I I share a lot of my personal story with my students uh, to create safe space. But I always say, so this is how I did it, but this is not necessarily how you do it. Like you're coming to my class to learn this skill for a lot of different reasons. It could be that you wanted to do something active and social with your friends it could be that you need to learn how to be in your body and this is always going to be something that you just do for yourself Mm. um so there's lots of different reasons why people you know try new things Mm. uh so uh my path isn't everybody's path but yeah that was what i wanted to do i love well i don't know there's a really fantastic energy exchange when you perform Mm. uh in person that i really love uh i feel like when i perform i am like the best brightest version of myself
0: Hmm. and
1: i just feel really uh, i feel almost divine in many ways like i've just got like this all this energy and i can give it to the audience and the audience gives it back to me and i can manipulate it and make them feel how i want them to feel with what i'm doing so
0: Mm. so for the 20 years you were teaching Mm -hmm. uh was that like in a studio did you like how was that like in a studio or was that in some space you created or
1: uh i started i did 10 years i taught 10 years through halifax recreation again i honestly i love like halifax recreation um because their mandate is to provide all these opportunities at a low a lower cost for the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I start. I, I taught at the, at St. Andrew's recreation center for 10 years and I met so many amazing people that I still know to this day. Mm-hmm. I, I can be anywhere in the city. I can be out and about. I can be in one of the libraries I work at. I can be, uh, and then I, I will get some random person coming up and tell me that you were my belly dance teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, awesome. I hope you had a really good time in my class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, did you stop it? Do you still do it?
1: Um, yeah. So, well, the pandemic kind of stopped it for me. Um, uh. Yeah. So uh, after I taught at St. Andrews, I taught at my friend's uh, studio, Serpentine Studios for seven years seven, well, anyway, seven or eight years, at least until uh, last summer, um, I uh, did, we had to switch over to virtual classes, which I finished out the term that I was teaching. And on top of, on top of library work, which got uh, more stressful and more complicated last year because of the pandemic, Mm. the additional, the additional work uh, and energy it took to film a class uh, it's, it, and then also try and engage with students over social media and it just, it, it wasn't very fulfilling. I don't think it, I don't know if it's super fulfilling for the students. Uh, it certainly wasn't fulfilling for me. It, mm-hmm. it was more burdensome to me and it was really hard, um, hard to film a class to nobody ha, don't, not have that energy exchange, um, not know how it's really landing because students aren't responding to my emails or aren't commenting or anything like that. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was like creating in a, in a vacuum a little bit and a class is, is for people. And if I don't have people, then it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a class, I guess. Right. (laughs) That's a thing for me.
0: Yeah, so um, I was gonna ask: these classes were they live or on demand?
1: These were recorded, so I would. Oh, so you record and then send it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it might have been different if we'd been able to pivot immediately over to like live classes. It might have been a little different, Mm. but yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, it was
1: too much. It was too much.
0: Yeah, I guess you know. Before I go into the other things you do now, would be a good time to talk about last year. Mm-hmm. Um change a lot of things, I guess, for you. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned the uh, belly dancing classes mm-hmm. and also the library. But like with the library though, what changed?
1: Well, I mean we were we were closed for months. Um so I I led one of the teams that um figured out how to do virtual programming last summer. Um so, yeah, <laughs> we had to we had to figure a lot of stuff out. We had to learn how to use Zoom to safely run uh, an online space for a program. Um, it was a lot of work. And then there was also a lot of fear and of the unknown because we didn't know a lot about the pandemic last year. Um, we were, you know, so every uh, yeah, it just complicated everything so much and but in many ways it also forced some very positive change on us. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, I think virtual programming uh, adds another layer of accessibility to the work that the library does. And I see a lot of the programs that um, my colleagues and I work on uh, as moving forward as a blended, a blended program now because, Mm. because yeah, some people thrive on that, like being in physical space together. Some people aren't able to do that. So um, having uh, having a, a virtual version of a program uh, with you know things like closed captioning, other people can also use third party accessibility applications to support them. Um, yeah. So and also you don't have to worry about childcare if your kids are home from school and you can't and they have to you know they're there and you need you know, you need to do something for yourself. Uh, you don't have to travel uh, it makes it a lot more convenient I think for a lot of folks um, mm. so I think it pushed us to have more options so I'm
0: um, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you saying now you know with the vaccines and the gradual reopening and stuff if I don't know by Christmas whatever mm. life is back to normal and we open up and stuff do you think some of these programs will continue or will, will it all go back to being live
1: oh i think we'll continue to have some virtual programs because again uh you know winter is is a time for instance when a lot of folks uh maybe struggle more to leave their houses or it's more difficult for people i know a lot of seniors um, won't come out to a library program uh, in the winter time after dark because they're scared of falling and it you know that adding the darkness to uncertain footing it's just too much, right? So mm-hmm. I can see that a lot of uh, that. I can see virtual programming continuing. I think it's a I think I think we would have eventually gotten there, but the pandemic pushed us there a lot more quickly. So, yeah. Yeah. But that all that said, that's very positive. But all of that is also a lot of work. So and a lot of stress and it's a lot of experimentation and having to do new things all the time and uh, changing all the time. And that can be a little tiring. So.
0: Yeah. mm. And how do you cope with all that?
1: How do I? um, Well, what the other thing the pandemic taught me personally is that I kept my life way too busy. Um, Mm. So the pandemic gave me a lot of forced, forced downtime. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, I don't have to hustle all the time. (laughs) I don't, I don't have to be on the go all the time. And, uh, it allowed me time to reflect on like my life and my experiences. I started, I finally had space in my life to start therapy, which was incredibly beneficial. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's kind of how it affected me personally is I, I, uh, I realized I, I don't have to be out and doing something all Mm. the time like you know what (laughs) i've got a job that occupies a lot of my waking hours right now Mm. Um, i've got uh i've gotten used to having evenings off which is really nice because i used to work a full-time job teach a couple of nights a week go to knit night one night a week Um, i think it was literally only tuesday often that i might not have anything happening so (laughs) yeah Yeah. So yeah, it just slowed my life down, and
0: I'm liking it. Oh, you mentioned knit night. I didn't even Mm -hmm. know that was that was like you know uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things you did. But one of your one of the things on your bio is fiber artists. Is that Mm -hmm. part of the knitting thing?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, So uh, I I graduated from Nascad with an interdisciplinary bachelor's of fine arts, Uh, but when I was at NASCAD I mostly concentrated on textiles and fashion design. Uh, I kind of was thinking about it in terms of becoming a belly, like a dance costume designer, um, oh. you know, and things like that. But I ended up uh, taking courses through the summer just so I could maintain my student loan funding. And one of my only options when my first summer was weaving, like introduction to weaving. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with that. It's amazing. It's got, so many challenging things about it it's got so much math and it's and it's it's also it's incredibly repetitive when you're setting up a loom uh you have to you have like you have to thread everything twice through all the different like slots and and heddles and everything uh and and then There's something really soothing about the repetitive motions of a lot of textile work that I really enjoy. It's really meditative for me. So I loved weaving because once I had the loom set up, you could just weave for hours, just like pushing the pedals and moving the shuttle back and forth. Uh, And then I learned how to spin my own yarn. Um, and wow. yeah, so then, uh, uh, using drop spindles. And then I was like, well, this is slow. Uh, I need a spinning wheel. So I learned how to use a spinning wheel. Um,
0: <laughs> what was the difference between the two? Which one? Are, you know what? So the only, I guess, idea or, uh, education I have <laughs> of all these things I'm mentioning is from... <laughs> I think Sleeping Beauty, yeah. where they had all the things in the in the town like taken away.
1: Yes, yes. Because she so. was gonna
0: prick her finger if she used it I mm-hmm. move, whatever.
1: Yeah, so that's actually yeah, that's a that's a lot. Well, that's mostly what people picture when I say I have a spinning wheel. They think of right. like Sleeping Beauty and that whole story and that prophecy that she was going to prick her finger and die. Right, um, right. And uh, yeah there's lots of there's lots of honestly there's lots of really interesting fairy tales and mythology around spinning because it's something that people have been doing uh for millennia Um, people used to make cord or yarn by rolling rolling fibers together on their thighs and then wrapping it around a stick to hold it in its shape And then Mm -hmm. that graduated to using a stick with a weight on it to do the twisting for them. So that was a little faster. And then they figured out a system of wheels and pulleys so that they could treadle with their feet, spin a wheel, and then twist the fiber together. So, and I just find it fascinating. I don't, sometimes I, I find it just incredibly compelling, like thinking about how the first person who did that thought to do that, I think right. it's just amazing. And then they started using the, the threads that they made to make clothes and uh, to make fishing nets and then to make sails so that their boats could sail, like go farther and use the wind instead of people power. It's like, I feel like uh, textiles are kind of almost the, uh, one of the pillars of civilization across the world. It's amazing like wherever you go there are beautiful like beautiful textiles like people make beautiful cloth that is very meaningful for them mm. uh, and then you know use it to adorn their bodies and their and their livestock and decorate their homes and you know um, you know sail across oceans it's really yeah cool.
0: you should teach a class you're so passionate about it
1: <laughs> I have taught classes uh, uh, I've taught at the Nova Scotia Center for Craft and Design a few, a few times.
0: And, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, so fat, fat activism, how did yeah. that begin for you? And what does that mean to you?
1: All right. Well, the fact of the matter is that I live in a fat body and I always have. Um, and uh, my mother took me to Weight Watchers for the first time with her when I was 10. And I feel like that can radicalize a person pretty quickly. Because right. uh, at the age of 10, I was a tomboy. I was wearing overalls and T-shirts and riding my bike everywhere and climbing trees and building forts in the forest. And my body did all the things that I wanted it to do, except apparently it didn't look right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it didn't look like my friend's bodies or it didn't, you know. My mom also, I think, is is a is a plus size woman, and um, but was I think thinner before she had children, and so I think she, uh, I think she, kind of felt bad about her body and thought I would feel bad about my body. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I had a lot of diets and things imposed on me uh, as I was growing up, and uh, I rebelled in, like. I simultaneously wanted to please my mother, and you know, be good, be a good kid. Uh, but also, I had no control, like over, over that. Right? I was a kid. Uh, yeah. So, uh, looking back on that, um, like, I feel like fat activism for me has just been about trying to make a space in the world for me. And other like people who are shaped like me to exist in um i have a lot of confidence i feel like for the most part that kind of toxic kind of diet culture was really more about my mother and less about me and um i feel like i came out of that relatively unscathed because through it all i my body still did all the things that i wanted my body to do like it took that dance class it I can play the piano. I was still racing around on my bike. I was still like, it was still doing all the things that I wanted it to do. Right. Mm. Um, and I was less concerned about how it looked because frankly, it didn't look how I wanted it to anyway, because I was pretty convinced when I was a kid that I was growing to grow up to look like my dad. Um, so when female puberty hit, it was, it was kind of a shock to me so i think i probably had a little bit of dissociation from my body as well but one of the things that belly dance did for me and it all kind of ties together frankly belly dance really helped me like learn about more about my body the things i could use my body for and the beautiful art that i could make with my body um and also being an artist myself i took a lot of drawing classes i drew a lot of naked people and I never thought that they were ugly or awful because they weren't perfectly skinny. In fact, they were much more interesting to draw if they weren't, like, real thin. Like, um, one of my favorite models when I was doing my college degree was a 40-year-old woman who had breastfed multiple babies, had wide hips, had loose skin in her belly, and she was so good to draw. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's another, another thing that I used to do is I used to do a lot of nude modeling because I had the experience as, a, an artist drawing a nude model. I had some experience as a dancer and knew how to move my body. And I knew that I could be interesting to draw. And, mm. uh, yeah, I actually was a really popular model at NASCAD for quite a few years in the nineties and early two thousands. Oh.
0: Um,
1: it was part of my hustle, um, And that's also part of my activism. It's just um, fat bodies exist. They deserve to exist. There is nothing inherently immoral about being fat. Um, Fat people deserve to have the same rights and comforts as everybody else. Um, It's not contingent on if you're healthy fat, because that's also a thing. Um, It's not contingent on you attempting to lose weight. It's... um, I just, I think all of my activism in my entire life has just been about wanting to be free to be myself, and to have other people be free to be themselves, because Mm. we put a lot of pressure on each other. So, um, now what that means for fat activism is that because I have a lot, I have a lot of body confidence. um, I'm just, I'm going to be who I want to be, do what I want to do, and a lot of, a lot of people who look like me uh don't have that kind of confidence so i just i just go out there and i feel like i'm gonna go out i'm gonna do the things that i want to do i'm gonna be who i am and i'm gonna make a space for myself in the world and i sometimes i sometimes it's just simply by existing sometimes i'm speaking up um so because for instance like there's a lot of public spaces that aren't designed for accessibility and that's accessibility for fat people as well. Um, like putting art, like having, uh, holding a, holding a concert and only having chairs with arms on them is a problem. Um, mm. you know, uh, I, you know, sometimes, uh, in many of the workplaces I've been in, they're not, they're uncomfortable for me, sometimes physically painful. So now I speak up about things like that because I have, again, I'm older, I have some, I have a lot of confidence, uh, I have agency, and I have the privilege of security now, and so I can use my voice to make things better for myself and for, for other fat people, so, um, mm. yeah, so, uh, in ta- when I'm curating my online spaces, for instance, it's all, I, it's very anti-diet culture, um, riots, not diets, uh, <laughs> I, I try and practice uh, uh yeah, I don't let people talk poorly about their bodies around me because uh, it's not good for my mental health and it's definitely not good for theirs. Um, and uh, fat activism also wove itself into my belly dance teaching. I am not what people expect when they walk into a belly dance class. Uh, they don't expect that. Um, but uh, what I did attract as a belly dance teacher were people who, um, had differently shaped bodies. I had, I had, I also had, I had men in my class and non-binary people in my class. I had, uh, women who were plus sized women who were, you know, skinny women who, you know, didn't like a lot of things about themselves. So, Mm -hmm. um, me being so comfortable and demonstrating that comfort, I think, uh frees a lot of people to feel that about themselves as well. Mm. So yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna use all the tools at my disposal in every aspect of my life to show how I want to be free. So
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I don't even know if you uh, know of is I think it's Fat Live Drawing. Do you know do you know of this? No so i think it's on instagram and what it basically is is you kind of sign up and it's every sunday or every other sunday you can draw people with you know different like of different body sizes mm-hmm. and um what i like they do is so they actually donate the funds they raise to charity so charity is like um i can't remember the name now but one of the charities actually helps donate like pads and tampons and things like this yeah you should check it out i Um, should.
1: yeah that
0: sounds amazing (laughs) um okay so i think the next set kind of blend into each other uh were you saying you grew up wanting to like you grew up thinking you'd look like your dad when you're grown Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like you know the gender fluid thing, queer, mm-hmm. bisexual, and sex positive. They kind of in, in a yeah. way go together. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about all those?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So I th- I thought. <clears throat> yeah. So as I said before, puberty was a was a hard time for me. Uh, I grew I grew breasts uh, really early. I think I had to wear my first bra when I was maybe nine, um, and. Uh, that kind of triggered for me a period. Well, it lasted for a good long time, where I would only dress in jeans and plaid shirts that kind of hid my body. And I was always really excited when I got mistaken for a boy. Uh, it was it was it was great. Um, and then I don't know it. From like, yeah. But then I also then got back. Uh, got you know. I don't know, there's just always been, my life is just very confusing. <laughs> it's just always been very confusing. I, uh, yeah, um, I have never felt like I fit anywhere. I didn't have, because this was, I'm 48, so that was, when I this was happening, it was like the set, like 70s, early 80s, and I just didn't have words or vocabulary for even concepts uh, around this, because I grew up in such a rural area. Um, and I don't know. It was, I, I am grateful at least that my parents kind of let me be me for the mm. most part. I still got forced into dresses for like to go to kingdom hall, uh, and for pictures. Oh, home. like that's
0: Jehovah's Witness, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was another, that was another
0: theme. I'm not a fan.
1: <laughs> I'm not a fan either. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, like, okay. So this is anyway i had a friend we're really close and they're joe's witness and that's mm-hmm. not like it's not because they come to your door and knock that's frustrating mm-hmm. but it's fine whatever so and i don't know if it was just the one in nigeria obviously all of the mm-hmm. Jehovah's witnesses worldwide but they have this thing where you have a card where you can't take blood for some yep. fucking reason mm-hmm. anyway um so this lady like she had um so so my friend's mom had complications doing like uh childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh all she needed was just to get blood. <laughs> they just take blood transfusion and all be fine and you'll be okay and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. Uh no, uh well. At a point, she was, okay, she was going to take it, but then the, you know, the witnesses came and, like, they gave Mm -hmm. her, like, this talk, and she was like, no, you know, you can't take blood because in the Bible, whatever, anyway, Mm -hmm. she died, Mm -hmm. and, like, (laughs) all she had to do was take blood, so, so, I'm not, like, a fan, I'm, I'm just not a fan.
1: Yeah, I'm not a super fan either. I'm not. I am not a Jehovah's Witness.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, so you so you grow up uh, there. Okay, okay, yeah. and then you would have to dress it. Okay. Yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, that I don't know. Uh, gen like different gender expression has just kind of moved through my life like a sine wave. Like it's just um, sometimes I express myself uh, in more masculine ways, sometimes in more feminine ways. Uh, when I started belly dancing that really helped me embrace I think uh, feminine feminine strength and power uh, at that time mm. um, and uh, but now I think uh, I've for years I've always thought of me belly dancing as like kind of almost like doing drag um, it's oh. yeah so it's uh, I, You know what RuPaul says uh, we're all born naked the rest is drag I think that is really applicable so um, yeah most of the time my gender expression is pretty neutral I'm kind of a jeans and t-shirts and plaid shirts kind of kind of person no matter what Uh, Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes uh, again again it's all twisted up with fat activism um, because uh, and gender expression Uh, again, because as a fat person, I don't have a lot of choices in the clothes I get to wear, Mm. uh, in many ways. Um, there's only a few stores that I can shop at that have clothes that fit my body type. Uh, and, and a lot of, a lot of fat women, especially like people with fat female bodies are to be acceptable. You have to be ultra feminine, Right. You uh-huh. have to like so, yeah. It's been struggle. The pandemic was hard for me last year because last summer, Reitmans had to go into I think receivership or like they were going to have to close, either um, they they were going to have to close some of their stores. And mm-hmm. Reitmans is the parent company that has a uh, has a couple of plus size stores uh, attached to it, like Penningtons and Additionnel. So I was freaking out because. If I lose those stores, I have nowhere. Nowhere to buy clothes to cover my body. Never mind express my personal style. Mm-hmm. You know, I posted about my dismay at this potentially happening. And I had all of my like my straight size friends saying things like, Oh, but I hear there's this wonderful boutique in Bedford. And I'm just like, that is one one independent store. And I am literally worried about having to maybe make my own underwear right now because I won't have anywhere to buy it. Mm. Um, So I was like having to check people's privilege there. I was like, listen, you can go to the mall and you've got 50 stores you can go shop in. I go to the mall, I've got one. If that one store goes away, Mm. what am I doing, right? Right, Um, right, right. So yeah, um, yeah. So I had some really hard gender gender stuff to deal with last year uh, Mm. because I think what upsets me the most throughout my life is when my choices are being taken away from me yeah yeah, yeah. so when I'm not free to be myself and in many ways that was I felt like it was being taken away from me so Mm. um, yeah so uh, the way my brain rebelled at that was to really send me into like Uh, like a like a very much a non-binary gender expression or even almost masculine gender expression for quite a few months Mm. I remember one morning I think I was I can't remember I was going to be going to a meeting and I was like oh maybe I'll put on a little makeup this morning I'm going to be seeing people in person and they will see my eyes and stuff like that so I was like so I started I put on I darkened up my eyebrows a little bit And then I, I start, I put on, I put mascara on one eye and then I looked up into the mirror and I was like, oh God, no, 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 Mm. no. And then I had to wash it all off because I was Mm. like, that's not me today. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I was actually really impressed. Like recently I I wore a dress. I felt like wearing a dress. So I wore a dress. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah. So gender fluid, I guess is the term that. I think best describes how like my state of being right now Mm. um maybe if i'd had you know more words and options and concepts when i was a teenager i i might have done some medical transitioning but at this late stage i've got lots of other things going on with my body that uh i think would make it not great Mm. and I've done a lot of work over the past couple of decades using things like belly dance and advocacy, and um, you know, to get the comfort, like to embody in my in myself, right? So, mm. um, yeah, I, and there's actually there's a lot about my body I really appreciate, and uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> so no. yeah that you know kind of that's excuse me that sums it all up so it still comes back to the fat axism i'm -hmm. gonna let you go with this one question Mm though um someone is gonna say one of the i guess replies or responses that Mm -hmm. people always give or usually some of the time Mm -hmm. give for someone like being fat positive is that it's not healthy. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, what do you say to that?
1: Well, how healthy are they? But you can't judge somebody's health by looking at them. I mean, looking at me, I'm fat. But you know what? My, um, I have excellent blood pressure. My cholesterol is perfect. Um, I am incredibly healthy. Uh, but I'm still fat. And I'm going to stay that way just because I have another condition that causes fat on my body and uh again health is not health is not necessary for a human being to be valued there are so many uh thin people out there who are inc- are much less healthy uh than i am uh, but their bodies are deemed socially acceptable so their health is never in question their health is not tied to their value in society
0: mm. why
1: should a fat person's health be tied to the value in society you know one of so,
0: the Oh, sorry. Before you continue, I'll just add this mm. something just came to my mind. I had a discussion with a friend some time back, and they couldn't have a procedure done because they were not the right BMI. Mm. So, if they had, and this is meant like, you know, the doctor, you know, like from the doctor, mm. whatever, for us to do this surgery or whatever procedure, you have to be in this BMI.
1: Yeah, that's complete bullshit. BMI was invented. 100 or more years ago by an insurance person, like somebody in insurance, to judge how healthy a population might be. And not only the population, it was based on men, and it was based on white men. It is racist, it's sexist, and completely not based in science. And I can't believe doctors are still using it right now. I don't let, I don't let a doctor mention BMI to me. Um, so... It's, it's, com- it has no basis in medical science. Wow. It's just literally an actuarial table for insurance purposes. That's what it's for. It's so that, you know, you can be judged easily and possibly charge more money to buy insurance. So it's a, uh, yeah, BMI, it's complete crap. Doctors, medical fat phobia is a huge issue that kills fat people. It's, Like, uh, we're often treated so poorly by medical professionals that we don't seek out help. We have a lot of medical trauma around that. Uh, And if you're fat and black, I don't know how you could even, like, how you could even, like, go forward and trust the medical system at all. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I have a certain, I have privilege because of my skin color, but I still get treated really, really poorly by most of the medical profession. I, um, I was for, I've been denied medical care because of my weight. Um, I've had to start using tools like, uh, so if I'm seeing a doctor and they won't do a certain test on me, uh, I ask them to please note that in my chart that they are have made the decision not to send me for that test. I need them to record that. Um, and that usually makes them you know, do that. Other, other tools that I use uh, with medical professionals Uh, that I've learned, uh, I ask them, so if they tell me that I have to lose weight, I'm just like, okay, I didn't come in here about my weight. I came in here because I've got plantar fasciitis from walking in uh, secondhand shoes, 45 minutes a day to my job because there's a bus strike. I didn't have a problem before I had to walk 45 minutes each way in the only shoes that I could afford. Uh, So close your eyes. And now, think of me again. Except I'm skinny. How? What treatment would you offer a thin person who came to you with this problem? Mm. And now I want you to give that to me, because my weight is not the issue here. My weight is your issue. It's not mine. Mm. So, but it's a—it's uh, just shitty that you have to advocate so hard for yourself uh, <clears throat> with a pro- with like with a profession that's supposed to care for you.
0: Mm. So, mm. yeah man eleanor thank you so much for sharing and i think we you know we should have just one conversation where we're talking about like this medical because it it was mind-blowing when my friend told me i was like wait so you're supposed to have this surgery but you can't have it because Mm. you have to be a certain way to have it." yeah it's ridiculous
1: i was okay like i'm gonna I have a soapbox so high to stand on for this. <laughs> like you have no idea. I have a friend um, who had who tried for years to lose weight so she could get breast reduction surgery in Nova Scotia because you had to be a certain BMI before they would remove any breast tissue, hmm. and which is again bullshit. So she she had uh, so she was a curvy a curvy woman. Um, she would lose weight and then she'd lose a little bit of belly and that was part of the support for her really large breasts and then as soon as she lost enough weight to lose that support her breasts would start really hurting her back and they would hurt her back so much that she couldn't exercise anymore and she would gain the weight back um, she uh, eventually moved to Alberta where they did not have a BMI uh, requirement for a breast reduction surgery it's ridiculous because if they'd given her breast reduction surgery I bet she would have been much more able to you know get on a treadmill and do the lose the weight right mm. but yeah it's uh, yeah it's it's just it's sexist and fat phobic and racist and there's so many things wrong with BMI uh, we could probably like there are whole shows about it I there's one a podcast that I listen to called Maintenance Phase that's all about kind of the health and wellness and diet industry mm. It Kind of debunks a lot of those kind of myths. It's really fantastic. So, I'll
0: uh, check it out. Yeah. All right, uh, Luna, Thank you so much for coming to the sanctuary, and I can't wait to have you back.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, this has been a really fun conversation. You ask really interesting questions.